millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Chapter 1 of Salambo by Gustave Flaubert. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, I'd suggest going back and listening to the very first episode, starting from the beginning. It'll give you a little bit of context for what you're about to hear, and I think just kind of make it better. So, once you've done that, come on right back. I'll be right here. Let's dive in. Chapter 1. The Feast. It was at Megara, a suburb of Carthage, in the gardens of Hamilcar. The soldiers whom he had commanded in Sicily were having a great feast to celebrate the anniversary of the Battle of Eryx, and as the master was away and they were numerous, they ate and drank with perfect freedom. The captains who wore bronze cotherni had placed themselves in the central path, beneath a gold-fringed purple awning which reached from the wall of the stables to the first terrace of the palace. The common soldiers were scattered beneath the trees, where numerous flat-roofed buildings might be seen. Wine presses, cellars, storehouses, bakeries, and arsenals, with a court for elephants, dens for wild beasts, and a prison for slaves. Fig trees surrounded the kitchens, a wood of sycamores stretched away to meet masses of verdure, where the pomegranate shone amid the white tufts of the cotton plant. Vines, grape-laden, grew up into the branches of the pines. A field of roses bloomed beneath the plane trees. Here and there, lilies rocked upon the turf. The paths were strewn with black sand, mingled with powdered coral. And in the center, the avenue of cypress formed, as it were, a double colonnade of green obelisks from one extremity to the other. Far in the background stood the palace, built of yellow mottled Numidian marble, broad courses supporting its four terraced stories. With its large, straight, ebony staircase bearing the prow of a vanquished galley at the corners of every step, its red doors quartered with black crosses, its brass gratings protecting it from scorpions below, and its trellises of gilded rods closing the apertures above, it seemed to the soldiers in its haughty opulence as solemn and impenetrable as the face of Hamilcar. The council had appointed his house for the holding of this feast. 
the convalescents lying in the temple of Eshmoon had set out at daybreak and dragged themselves thither on their crutches. Every minute others were arriving. They poured in ceaselessly, by every path, like torrents rushing into a lake. Through the trees, the slaves of the kitchens might be seen, running, scared, and half-naked. The gazelles fled, bleating on the lawns. The sun was setting, and the perfume of citron trees rendered the exhalation from the perspiring crowd heavier still. Men of all nations were there, Ligurians, Lusitanians, Balearans, Negroes, and fugitives from Rome. Beside the heavy Dorian dialect were audible the resonant Celtic syllables, rattling like chariots of war, while Ionian terminations conflicted with consonants of the desert, as harsh as the jackal's cry. The Greek might be recognized by his slender figure, the Egyptian by his elevated shoulders, the Cantabrian by his broad calves. There were Carians proudly nodding their helmet plumes, Cappadocian archers displaying large flowers painted on their bodies with the juice of herbs, and a few Lydians in women's robes, dining in slippers and earrings. Others were ostentatiously daubed with vermilion and resembled coral statues. They stretched themselves on the cushions. They ate squatting round large trays, or lying face downwards, they drew out the pieces of meat and sated themselves, leaning on their elbows in the peaceful posture of lions tearing their prey. The last comers stood leaning against the trees, watching the low tables half-hidden beneath the scarlet coverings, and awaiting their turn. Hamilcar's kitchens being insufficient, the council had sent them slaves, ware, and beds, and in the middle of the garden, as on a battlefield where they burned the dead, large bright fires might be seen, at which oxen were roasting. Anise sprinkled loaves alternated with great cheeses heavier than discuses, crateras filled with wine, and cantharises filled with water, together with baskets of gold filigree work containing flowers. Every eye was dilated with the joy of being able to at last gorge at pleasure and songs were beginning, here and there. First, they were served with birds and green sauce in plates of red clay, relieved by drawings in black, and then with every kind of shellfish that is gathered on the Punic coasts, wheat and porridge, beans and barley, and snails dressed with cumin on dishes of yellow amber. Afterwards, the tables were covered with meats, antelopes with their horns, peacocks with their feathers, whole sheep, cooked in sweet wine, haunches of she-camels and buffaloes, hedgehogs with garum, fried grasshoppers, and preserved dormice. Large pieces of fat floated in the midst of saffron in bowls of tamprani wood. Everything was running over with wine, truffles, and asafoetida. Pyramids of fruit were crumbling upon honeycombs, and they had not forgotten a few of those plump little dogs with pink silky hair and fattened on olive leaves a Carthaginian dish held in abhorrence among other nations. Surprise at the novel fare excited the greed of the stomach. The Gauls, with their long hair drawn up on the crown of the head, snatched at the watermelons and lemons and crunched them up with the rind. The Negroes, who had never seen a lobster, tore their faces with its red prickles. But the shaven Greeks, whiter than marble, threw the leavings of their plates behind them, while the herdsmen from Brutium in their wolfskin garments, 
devoured in silence, with their faces in their portions. Night fell. The valerium spread over the Cypress Avenue was drawn back, and torches were brought. The apes, sacred to the moon, were terrified on the cedar tops by the wavering lights of the petroleum as it burned in the porphyry vases. They uttered screams which afforded mirth to the soldiers. Oblong flames trembled in cuirasses of brass. Every kind of scintillation flashed from the gem-encrusted dishes. The crateras, with their borders of convex mirrors, multiplied and enlarged the images of things. The soldiers thronged around, looking at their reflections with amazement and grimacing to make themselves laugh. They tossed the ivory stools and golden spatulas to one another across the tables. They gulped down all the Greek wines in their leathern bottles, the Campanian wine enclosed in amphoras, the Cantabrian wines brought in casks with the wines of the jujube, synanimum, and lotus. There were pools of these on the ground that made the foot slip. The smoke of the meats ascended into the foliage with the vapor of the breath. Simultaneously were heard the snapping of jaws, the noise of speech, songs and cups, the crash of Campanian vases shivering into a thousand pieces, or the limpid sound of a large silver dish. In proportion, as their intoxication increased, they more and more recalled the injustice of Carthage. The Republic, in fact, exhausted by the war, had allowed all the returning bands to accumulate in the town. Gisco, their general, had, however, been prudent enough to send them back severally in order to facilitate the liquidation of their pay, and the council had believed that they would, in the end, consent to some reduction. But at present, ill will was caused by the inability to pay them. This debt was confused in the minds of the people with the 3,200 euboic talents exacted by Lutatius, and equally with Rome, they were regarded as enemies to Carthage. The mercenaries understood this, and their indignation found vent in threats and outbreaks. At last, they demanded permission to assemble to celebrate one of their victories, and the peace party yielded, at the same time revenging themselves on Hamilcar, who had so strongly upheld the war. It had been terminated notwithstanding all his efforts, so that, despairing of Carthage, he had entrusted the government of the mercenaries to Gisco, to appoint his palace, for their reception, was to draw upon him something of the hatred which was born to them. Moreover, the expense must be excessive, and he would incur nearly the whole. Proud of having brought the Republic to submit, the mercenaries thought that they were at last about to return to their homes, with the payment for their blood in the hoods of their cloaks. But as seen through the mists of intoxication, their fatigues seemed to them prodigious and but ill-rewarded. They showed one another their wounds. They told of their combats, their travels, and the hunting in their native lands. They imitated the cries and leaps of wild beasts, and then came unclean wagers. They buried their heads in the amphoras and drank on without interruption, like thirsty dromedaries. A Lusitanian of gigantic stature ran over the tables, carrying a man in each hand at arm's length and spitting out fire through his nostrils. 
Some Lacedaemonians, who had not taken off their cuirasses, were leaping with a heavy step. Some advanced like women, making obscene gestures. Others stripped naked to fight amidst the cups after the fashion of gladiators, and a company of Greeks danced around a vase whereupon nymphs were to be seen, while a negro tapped with an ox bone on a brazen buckler. And suddenly they heard a plaintive song, a song loud and soft, rising and falling in the air like the wing-beating of a wounded bird. It was the voice of the slaves in the ergastulum. Some soldiers rose at a bound to release them and disappeared. They returned, driving through the dust amid shouts, twenty men, distinguished by their greater paleness of face. Small black felt caps of conical shape covered their shaven heads. They all wore wooden shoes and yet made a noise as of old iron, like driving chariots. They reached the avenue of Cyprus, where they were lost among the crowd of those questioning them. One of them remained apart, standing. Through the rents in his tunic, his shoulders could be seen striped with long scars. Drooping his chin, he looked round him with distrust, closing his eyelids somewhat against the dazzling light of the torches. But when he saw that none of the armed men were unfriendly to him, a great sigh escaped from his breast. He stammered, he sneered through the bright tears that bathed his face. At last he seized a brimming cantharus by its rings, raised it straight up into the air with his outstretched arms, from which his chains hung down, and then, looking to heaven and still holding the cup, he said, Hail first to thee, Balashmoon, the Deliverer whom the people of my country call Esculapius. And to you, genii of the fountains, light and woods, and to you, ye gods, hidden beneath the mountains and in the caverns of the earth, and to you, strong men in shining armor, who have set me free. Then he let fall the cup and related his story. He was called Spendius. The Carthaginians had taken him in the Battle of Agonusi, and he thanked the mercenaries once more in Greek, Ligurian, and Punic. He kissed their hands. Finally, he congratulated them on the banquet, while expressing his surprise at not perceiving the cups of the sacred legion. These cups, which bore an emerald vine on each of their six golden faces, belonged to a corps composed exclusively of young patricians of the tallest stature, and they were a privilege, almost a sacerdotal distinction, and accordingly nothing among the treasures of the Republic was more coveted by the mercenaries. They detested the Legion on this account, and some of them had been known to risk their lives for the inconceivable pleasure of drinking out of these cups. Accordingly, they commanded that the cups be brought. They were in the keeping of the Sicitia, companies of traders, who had a common table. The slaves returned, at that hour, all the members of the Sicitia were asleep. Well, let them be awakened, responded the mercenaries. Oh, after a second excursion, it was explained to them that the cups were shut up in a temple. Well, let it be opened, they replied. And when the slaves confessed with trembling that they were in the possession of Gisco, the general, they cried out, I'll let him bring them. Well, Gisco soon appeared, 
at the far end of the garden with an escort of the sacred legion. His full black cloak, which was fastened on his head to a golden mitre starred with precious stones and which hung all about him down to his horse's hooves, blended in the distance with the color of the night. His white beard, the radiancy of his headdress, and his triple necklace of broad blue plates beating against his breast were alone visible. When he entered, the soldiers greeted him with loud shouts, all crying, The cubs! The cubs! Well, he began by declaring that if reference were to be had to their courage, they were worthy of them. The crowd applauded and howled with joy. He knew it, he who had commanded them over yonder, and had returned with the last cohort in the last galley. True, true, said they. Nevertheless, Gisco continued, the Republic had respected their national divisions, their customs, and their modes of worship. In Carthage, they were free. As to the cups of the sacred legion, well, they were private property. Suddenly, a Gaul, who was close to Spendius, sprang over the tables and ran straight up to Gisco, gesticulating and threatening him with two naked swords. Without interrupting his speech, the general struck him on the head with his heavy ivory staff, and the barbarian fell. The Gauls howled, and their frenzy, which was spreading to the others, would soon have swept away the legionaries. Gisco shrugged his shoulders as he saw them growing pale. He thought that his courage would be useless against these exasperated brute beasts. It would be better to revenge himself upon them by some artifice later. Accordingly, he signed to his soldiers and slowly withdrew. Then, turning in the gateway towards the mercenaries, he cried to them that they would repent of it. The feast recommenced, but Gisco might return and by surrounding the suburb, which was beside the last ramparts, might crush them against the walls. Then they felt themselves alone, in spite of their crowd, and the great town, sleeping beneath them in the shade, suddenly made them feel afraid. With its piles of staircases, its lofty black houses, and its vague gods, fiercer even than its people, in the distance... A few ship's lanterns were gliding across the harbor, and there were lights in the temple of Camon. They thought of Hamilcar. Where was he? Why had he forsaken them when peace was concluded? His differences with the council were doubtless but a pretense in order to destroy them. Their unsatisfied hate recoiled upon him and they cursed him, exasperating one another with their own anger. At this juncture, they collected together beneath the plane trees to see a slave who, with eyeballs fixed, neck contorted, and lips covered with foam, was rolling on the ground and beating the soil with his limbs. Someone cried out that he was poisoned. All then believed themselves poisoned. They fell upon the slaves. A terrible clamor was raised, and a vertigo of destruction came like a whirlwind upon the drunken army. They struck about them at random. They smashed. They slew. Some hurled torches into the foliage. Others, leaning over the lion's balustrade, massacred the animals with arrows. The most daring ran over to the elephants, desiring to cut down their trunks and eat ivory. Some Balearic slingers, however, who had gone round the corner of the palace in order to pillage more conveniently, were checked by a lofty barrier made of Indian cane. 
They cut the lock straps with their daggers, and then found themselves beneath the front that faced Carthage, in another garden full of trimmed vegetation. Lines of white flowers, all following one another in regular succession, formed long parabolas like star rockets on the azure-colored earth. The gloomy bushes exhaled warm and honeyed odors. There were trunks of trees smeared with cinnabar, which resembled columns covered with blood. In the center were twelve pedestals, each supporting a great glass ball, and these hollow globes were indistinctly filled with with reddish lights, like enormous and still palpitating eyeballs. The soldiers lighted themselves with torches as they stumbled on the slope of the deeply labored soil, but they perceived a little lake divided into several basins by walls of blue stones, and so limpid was the wave that the flames of the torches quivered in it at the very bottom on a bed of white pebbles and golden dust. It began to bubble. Luminous spangles glided past. Great fish, with gems about their mouths, appeared near the surface. With much laughter, the soldiers slipped their fingers into the gills and brought them to the tables. They were the fish of the Barca family and all were descended from those primordial lotes which had hatched the mystic egg wherein the goddess was concealed. The idea of committing a sacrilege revived the greediness of the mercenaries, and they speedily placed fire beneath some brazen vases and amused themselves by watching the beautiful fish struggling in the boiling water. The surge of soldiers pressed on. They were no longer afraid. They commenced to drink again. Their ragged tunics were wet with the perfumes that flowed in large drops from their foreheads, and resting both fists on the tables, which seemed to them to be rocking like ships, they rolled their great drunken eyes around to devour by sight what they could not take. Others walked amid the dishes on the purple table covers, breaking ivory stools and files of Tyrian glass to pieces with their feet. Songs mingled with the death rattle of the slaves expiring amid the broken cups. They demanded wine, meat, gold. They cried out for women. They raved in a hundred languages. Some thought that they were at the vapor baths on account of the steam which floated around them, or else, catching sight of the foliage, imagined that they were at the chase and rushed upon their companions as upon wild beasts. The conflagration spread to all the trees, one after another, and the lofty mosses of verdure emitting long white spirals looked like volcanoes beginning to smoke. The clamor redoubled. The wounded lions roared in the shade.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In an instant, the highest terrace of the palace was illuminated. The central door opened and a woman, Hamilcar's daughter herself, clothed in black garments, appeared on the threshold. She descended the first staircase, which ran obliquely along the first story, then the second and the third, and stopped on the last terrace at the head of the galley staircase. Motionless and with head bent, she gazed upon the soldiers. And behind her, on each side, were two long shadows of pale men clad in white, red-fringed robes which fell straight to their feet. They had no beard, no hair, no eyebrows. In their hands, which sparkled with rings, they carried enormous lyres, and with shrill voice they sang a hymn to the divinity of Carthage. They were the eunuch priests of the temple of Tanit, who were often summoned by Salambo to her house. At last she descended the galley staircase. The priests followed her. She advanced into the avenue of Cyprus and walked slowly through the tables of the captains, who drew back somewhat as they watched her pass. Her hair, which was powdered with violet sand and combined into the form of a tower after the fashion of the Chenonite maidens, added to her height. Tresses of pearls were fastened to her temples and fell to the corners of her mouth, which was as rosy as a half-open pomegranate. On her breast was a collection of luminous stones, their variegation imitating the scales of the murena. Her arms were adorned with diamonds and issued naked from her sleeveless tunic, which was starred with red flowers on a perfectly black ground. Between her ankles she wore a golden chainlet to regulate her steps, and her large, dark purple mantle, cut of an unknown material, trailed behind her, making, as it were, at each step, a broad wave which followed her. The priests played nearly stifled chords on their lyres from time to time, 
and in the intervals of the music might be heard the tinkling of the little golden chain and the regular patter of her papyrus sandals. No one as yet was acquainted with her. It was only known that she led a retired life, engaged in pious practices. Some soldiers had seen her in the night on the summit of her palace, kneeling before the stars amid the eddyings from kindled perfuming pans. It was the moon that had made her so pale. And there was something from the gods that enveloped her like a subtle vapor. Her eyes seemed to gaze far beyond terrestrial space. She bent her head as she walked, and in her right hand she carried a little ebony lyre. They heard her murmur, Dead, all dead. No more will you come, obedient to my voice, as when, seated on the edge of the lake, I used to throw seeds of the watermelon into your mouths. The mystery of Tanit ranged in the depths of your eyes that were more limpid than the globules of rivers. And she called them by their names, which were those of the months. Siv, Sivan, Tammuz, Elul, Tishri, Shebar, ah, have pity on me, goddess. The soldiers thronged about her without understanding what she said. They wondered at her attire, but she turned a long, frightened look upon them all. Then, sinking her head beneath her shoulders and waving her arms, she repeated several times, What have you done? What have you done? Yet you had bread and meats and oil and all the malabathrum of the granaries for your enjoyment. I had brought oxen from Hecatompolos. I had sent hunters into the desert. Her voice swelled, her cheeks purpled. She added, Where, pray, are you now? In a conquered town or in the palace of a master? And what master? Hamilcar, the Sufit, my father, the servant of the Baals. It, it was he who withheld from Lutatius those arms of yours, red now with the blood of his slaves. Know you of any in your own lands more skilled in the conduct of battles? Look, our palace steps are encumbered with our victories. Oh, but desist not. Burn it. I will carry away with me the genius of my house, my black serpent slumbering up yonder on lotus leaves. I will whistle and he will follow me. And if I embark in a galley, he will speed in the wake of my ship over the foam of the waves. Her delicate nostrils were quivering. She crushed her nails against the gems on her bosom. Her eyes drooped. And she resumed. Poor Carthage, lamentable city. No longer hast thou for thy protection the strong men of former days who went beyond the oceans to build temples on their shores. All the lands labored about thee, and the sea plains, plowed by thine oars, rocked with thy harvests. And then she began to sing the adventures of Melkarth, the god of the Sidonians, and the father of her family. She told of the ascent of the mountains of Ersiphonia, the journey to Tartessus, and the war against Massasabal to avenge the queen of the serpents. He pursued the female monster, whose tail undulated over the dead leaves like a silver brook, into the forest, and came to a plain where women with dragon croups were round a great fire, standing erect on the point of their tails. The blood-colored moon was shining within a pale circle, and their scarlet tongues cloven like the harpoons of fishermen, reached curling forth to the very edge of flame. 
and then Salambo, without pausing, related how Melkarth, after vanquishing Mesesibal, placed her severed head on the prow of his ship. At each throb of the waves it sank beneath the foam, but the sun embalmed it. It became harder than gold. Nevertheless, the eyes ceased not to weep, and the tears fell into the water continually. She sang all this in an old Chananite idiom, which the barbarians did not understand. They asked one another what she could be saying to them with those frightful gestures which accompanied her speech, and mounted round about her on the tables, beds, and sycamore boughs. They strove with open mouths and craned necks to grasp the vague stories hovering before their imaginations through the dimness of the theogenies, like phantoms wrapped in cloud. Only the beardless priests understood Salambo. Their wrinkled hands, which hung over the strings of their lyres, quivered, and from time to time they would draw forth the mournful chord. For, feebler than old women, they trembled at once with mystic emotion and with the fear inspired by men. The barbarians heeded them not, but listened continually to the maiden's song. None gazed at her like a young Numidian chief, who was placed at the captain's tables among soldiers of his own nation. His girdle so bristled with darts that it formed a swelling in his ample cloak, which was fastened on his temples with a leather lace. The cloth parted asunder as it fell upon his shoulders, and enveloped his countenance in shadow so that only the fires of his two fixed eyes could be seen. It was by chance that he was at the feast, his father having domiciled him with the Barca family, according to the custom by which kings used to send their children into the households of the great in order to pave the way for alliances. But Narhavas had lodged there for six months without having hitherto seen Salambo, and now, seated on his heels, with his head brushing the handles of his javelins, he was watching her with dilated nostrils, like a leopard crouching among the bamboos. On the other side of the tables was a Libyan of colossal stature and with short black curly hair. He had retained only his military jacket, the brass plates of which were tearing the purple of the couch. A necklace of silver moons was tangled in his hairy breast. His face was stained with splashes of blood. He was leaning on his left elbow with a smile on his large, open mouth. Salambo had abandoned the sacred rhythm. With a woman's subtlety, she was simultaneously employing all the dialects of the barbarians in order to appease their anger. To the Greeks, she spoke Greek. Then she turned to the Ligurians, the Campanians, the Negroes, and listening to her, each one found again in her voice the sweetness of his native land. She now, carried away by the memories of Carthage, sang of the ancient battles against Rome. They applauded. She kindled at the gleaming of the naked swords and cried aloud with outstretched arms. Her lyre fell. She was silent. And, pressing both hands upon her heart, she remained for some minutes with closed eyelids, enjoying the agitation of all these men. Matho, the Libyan, leaned over towards her. Involuntarily she approached him, and impelled by grateful pride, poured him a long stream of wine into a golden cup in order to conciliate the army. 
Drink, she said. He took the cup and was carrying it to his lips when a gall, the same that had been hurt by Gisco, struck him on the shoulder, while in a jovial manner he gave utterance to pleasantries in his native tongue. Spendius was not far off, and he volunteered to interpret them. Speak, said Matho. Oh, the gods protect you. You're going to become rich. When will the nuptials be? What nuptials? Well, yours. For with us, said the Gaul, when a woman gives a drink to a soldier, it means that she offers him her couch. He had not finished when Narhavas, with a bound, drew a javelin from his girdle and, leaning his right foot upon the edge of the table, hurled it against Matho. The javelin whistled among the cups and, piercing the Libyan's arm, pinned it so firmly to the cloth that the shaft quivered in the air. Matho quickly plucked it out, but he was weaponless and naked. At last he lifted the overladen table with both arms and flung it against Narhavas into the very center of the crowd that rushed between them. The soldiers and the Numidians pressed together so closely that they were unable to draw their swords. Matho advanced, dealing great blows with his head. When he raised it, Narhavas had disappeared. He sought for him with his eyes. Salambo also was gone. Then, directing his looks to the palace, he perceived the red door with the black cross closing far above. And he darted away. They saw him run between the prows of the galleys and then reappear along the three staircases until he reached the red door, against which he dashed his whole body. Panting, he leaned against the wall to keep himself from falling. But a man had followed him, and through the darkness, for the lights of the feast were hidden by the corner of the palace, he recognized Spendius. Be gone, said he. The slave, without replying, began to tear his tunic with his teeth, and then kneeling beside Matho, he tenderly took his arm and felt it in the shadow to discover the wound. By a ray of the moon, which was then gliding between the clouds, Spendius perceived a gaping wound in the middle of the arm. He rolled a piece of stuff about it, but the other said irritably, Leave me, leave me. Oh, no, replied the slave. You released me from the ergastulum. I am yours. You are my master. Command me. Matho walked round the terrace, brushing against the walls. He strained his ears at every step, glancing down into the silent apartments through the spaces between the gilded reeds. At last he stopped with a look of despair. Listen, said the slave to him. Oh, do not despise me for my feebleness. I have lived in the palace. I can wind like a viper through the walls. Come, in the ancestor's chamber, there is an ingot of gold beneath every flagstone. An underground path leads to their tombs. Well, what matters it, said Matho. Spendius was silent. They were on the terrace. A huge mass of shadow stretched before them, appearing as if it contained vague accumulations, like the gigantic billows of a black and petrified ocean. But a luminous bar rose towards the east. Far below, on the left, the canals of Megara were beginning to stripe the verdure of the gardens with their windings of white. 
The conical roofs of the heptagonal temples, the staircases, terraces, and ramparts were being carved by degrees upon the paleness of the dawn, and a girdle of white foam rocked around the Carthaginian peninsula, while the emerald sea appeared as if it were curdled in the freshness of the morning. Then, as the rosy sky grew larger, the lofty houses, bending over the sloping soil, reared and massed themselves like a herd of black goats coming down from the mountains. The deserted streets lengthened. The palm trees that topped the walls here and there were motionless. The brimming cisterns seemed like silver bucklers lost in the courts. The beacon on the promontory of Hermium was beginning to grow pale. The horses of Eshmoon, on the very summit of the Acropolis in the cypress wood, feeling that the light was coming, placed their hoofs on the marble parapet and neighed towards the sun. It appeared, and Spendius raised his arms with a cry. Everything stirred in a diffusion of red, for the god, as if he were rending himself, now poured full raid upon Carthage, the golden rain of his veins. The beaks of the galleys sparkled. The roof of Camon appeared to be all in flames, while far within the temples, whose doors were opening, glimmerings of light could be seen. Large chariots arriving from the country rolled their wheels over the flagstones in the streets. Dromedaries, baggage-laden, came down the ramps. Money-changers raised the penthouses of their shops at the crossways. Storks took to flight. White sails fluttered. In the woods of Tanit might be heard the tambourines of the sacred courtesans, and the furnaces for baking the clay coffins were beginning to smoke on the Mappalian point. Spendius leaned over the terrace. His teeth chattered, and he repeated, "'Ah, yes, yes, master,' I understand why you scorned the pillage of the house just now. Matho was as if he had just been awakened by the hissing of his voice and did not seem to understand. Spendius resumed, Ah, what riches! And the men who possess them have not even the steel to defend them. And then pointing with his right arm outstretched to some of the populace who were crawling on the sand outside the mole to look for gold dust. See, he said to him, the Republic is like these wretches, bending on the brink of the ocean. She buries her greedy arms in every shore, and the noise of the billows so fills her ear that she cannot hear behind her the tread of a master's heel. He drew Matho to quite the other end of the terrace and showed him the garden, wherein the soldiers' swords hanging on the trees were like mirrors in the sun. But here... There are strong men whose hatred is roused, and nothing binds them to Carthage. Neither families, oaths, nor gods. Matho remained leaning against the wall. Spendius came close and continued in a low voice. Do you understand me, soldier? We should walk purple-clad like satraps. We should bathe in perfumes and I should in turn have slaves. Are you not weary of sleeping on the hard ground, of drinking the vinegar of the camps, and of continually hearing the trumpet? But you will rest later, will you not, when they pull off your cuirass to cast your corpse to the vultures, or perhaps blind, 
lame and weak you will go, leaning on a stick from door to door to tell of your youth to pickle sellers and little children. Remember all the injustice of your chiefs, the campings in the snow, the marchings in the sun, the tyrannies of discipline, and the everlasting menace of the cross? And after all this misery, they have given you a necklace of honor. As they hang a girdle of bells round the breast of an ass to deafen it on its journey and prevent it from feeling fatigue. A man like you, braver than Pyrrhus, if only you had wished it, ah, how happy will you be in large, cool halls with the sound of lyres, lying on flowers, with women and buffoons, do not tell me that the enterprise is impossible. Have not the mercenaries already possessed Regium and other fortified places in Italy? Who is to prevent you? Hamilcar's away. The people execrate the rich. Gisco can do nothing with the cowards who surround him. Command them. Carthage is ours. Let us fall upon it. No, said Matho. The curse of Moloch weighs upon me. I felt it in her eyes, and and just now I saw a black ram retreating in a temple. Looking around him, he added, But where is she? And then Spendius understood that a great disquiet possessed him, and did not venture to speak again. The trees behind them were still smoking. Half-burned carcasses of apes dropped from their blackened boughs from time to time in the midst of the dishes. Drunken soldiers snored open-mouthed by the sides of the corpses, and those who were not asleep lowered their heads, dazzled by the light of day. The trampled soil was hidden beneath splashes of red. The elephants poised their bleeding trunks between the stakes of their pens. In the open granaries might be seen sacks of spilled wheat, Below the gate was a thick line of chariots which had been heaped up by the barbarians, and the peacocks perched in the cedars were spreading their tails and beginning to utter their cry. Matho's immobility, however, astonished Spendius. He was even paler than he had recently been, and he was following something on the horizon with fixed eyeballs, and with both fists resting on the edge of the terrace. Spendius crouched down and so at last discovered at what he was gazing— in the distance, a golden speck was turning in the dust on the road to Utica. It was the nave of a chariot drawn by two mules. A slave was running at the end of the pole and holding them by the bridle. Two women were seated in the chariot. The manes of the animals were puffed between the ears after the Persian fashion, beneath a network of blue pearls. Spendius recognized them and restrained a cry. A large veil floated behind in the wind.
That was Chapter 1 of Salambo by Gustave Flaubert. Thank you so much for listening. The next chapter will be coming soon. In fact, depending on when you listen to this, it may already be there as the next episode in the feed. If you subscribe to this podcast using whatever app or web page you're using right now, you'll get each episode delivered to you as soon as they're available, which is pretty cool. And if you like this enough to make it all the way to the end, please give it a review on that app or webpage or whatever. It'll help other people find it. Thanks again for listening. See you in Chapter 2. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.